Being a geek is all about being honest about what you enjoy and not being afraid to demonstrate that affection. It means never having to play it cool about how much you like something. It's basically a license to proudly emote on a somewhat childish level rather than behave like a supposed adult. Being a geek is extremely liberating. Those were the words of Simon Pegg. I'm Luke Hector and you're listening to the Broken Meeple Podcast. Welcome to the anniversary episode. On today's show, first impressions of Lost Legacy, The Starship and Trains, both by AEG, a quick roundup of the recent news in the board gaming world, a discussion segment on teaching new players how to play games, and then it's the big one, my all-time top 10 games that I have played to date. Hello and welcome to the show. It's been another month since the last one. I told you this was going to be a monthly podcast and not a bi-weekly one. I'd love to be able to do this as a day job, but I just don't. I have a job, I have a girlfriend, I have other commitments, and therefore I have to tone down the blog in some way. Now, eventually, hopefully, well, hopefully that's not going to be a, a downer on the blog itself. The written reviews are still coming and the YouTube channel is still currently going, I'll buy it slow, and the podcast is still monthly. There is the chance that I might have to wrap up the YouTube channel. I don't know yet. I'm just having to juggle the blog with work commitments. Obviously work and my life are more important than simply just running a YouTube channel. So I've got to make a decision one way or the other. That being said, things are progressing okay for now. So yes, it's been a year since the, probably over a year now actually, by the time this is released, that the Broken Meeple was started. My first written review was of Flashpoint Fire Rescue, and my first few episodes of the podcast were, well, I mean, I've always had a bit of a learning experience with the voice quality, but let's just say the first few episodes of the podcast, yeah, were nish good, or something like that anyway. They were certainly a learning curve there. But it's been quite a fun year doing it. I mean, the blog has grown to a good size. The name has been recognised among lo- local gamers. I've enjoyed the UK Games Expo, where I got a bit of sort of publicity there. And I just enjoy writing reviews and talking about games, really. So that's why I want to continue the monthly podcast and keep the written reviews going nice and regularly. In recent news on that front, uh, Club Fantastics, Fantastici, I think that's how they're called, Um, approached me asking if I wanted to be part of their little network to produce written reviews and well I might even try doing some iOS reviews in the future with them so that should be a nice little endeavor shall we say we'll see how that progresses over time but the idea with this episode is that it's still a typical format but the main hiatus of it is that it's the top 10 list that a lot of people have been wanting off me I've deliberately delayed it until this episode because it's obviously the anniversary one and I wanted to give something special so the top 10 list in this one will be my all-time top 10 these are my top 10 favorite games that if you shove these in front of me I'm going to want to play them no questions asked which ones are going to be at the top have you managed to guess any that are in my top 10 well we shall see but that's for later on first off let's get on with the news Quick roundup of the major news of recent days. Uh, the Fantasy Flight Games publisher who gave us X-Wing miniatures has now decided to do Armada. 
which is in the same universe except now you get to control Star Destroyers as your miniatures and well if you thought the X-Wing miniatures look good, good god the Star Destroyers look good. They are just the creme de la creme of space miniature models right now. I can't wait to see how this goes. I confess I'm not a player of X-Wing miniatures but it's still just... Oh, I've always wanted to see if a Star Destroyer could be put into X-Wing and even though this isn't quite the same thing it still uses much of the similar rules it's just obviously now we're dealing with more capital starships rather than the X-Wings and B-Wings and TIE Fighters so that should be a good one and well let's just say it's getting half of my mates giddy and emptying their wallets already trying to figure out how they can sort of budget for it later Gen Con is currently going on over in the States. I'm jealous that I can't go to such things, being miles over in the States and having other commitments. But lots of games are being published over there, including many that I want in my collection, or at least want to try soon. But probably what is going to be the biggest hotness over there is King of New York, which is the sequel to King of Tokyo. Much of the same style of play is used, the rolling the dice and holding onto them, having a big monster in your control, beating up other players. But it brings in some extra little rules about destroying buildings, moving through several areas, um, rather than just having Tokyo and not in Tokyo, you now have Manhattan, several levels of Manhattan, so upper, middle and lower, and, of course, and other areas of New York as well. So it sounds like it's going to be quite a cool game. Obviously, everyone is going to be snapping it up like crazy, and chances are I'll probably be one of them, although I have to deliberate with myself whether it's that different from King of Tokyo, that I would want both in my collection. There is currently a Kickstarter for Key to the Kingdom by Darren Mitchell. Now, for those of you who aren't in the realm of nostalgia, Key to the Kingdom was an old board game I used to own where it was a traditional roll and move fantasy battle game in a sense, where you moved around the board and collected treasures hoping to find the illustrious Key to the Kingdom and escape. But the cool way this worked is that you had lots of monsters that you could fight, you had lots of weapons you could find, and even though it was a roll and move mechanic, there was this really cool way that when you jumped into one of the whirlpools in the middle of the board, it then folded out into this completely new realm with different spaces and different bosses to fight. It was quite ingenious, it was not the best game in the world, but it was alright for the time and I did enjoy it. I no longer have a copy of it, but you know, it would have been nice to have still kept around. But apparently there is now a Kickstarter in order to bring it to the iOS and Android. Now, this is a game that probably could work on the tablet, but I'm not sure there's going to be a big enough market to want to bring it back. Maybe I'm wrong, maybe there's a huge nostalgic following that really wants this brought back. But for me, it's, you know, it had its time, it's pretty good, but I wouldn't necessarily go out of my way to grab it on iOS or Android, to be honest. But we'll see how that click takes off. And also for iOS, this is slightly older news, but I wanted to bring it to attention anyway. There is plans for Core Worlds to be brought to the iOS and hopefully Android as well. Core Worlds is a deck building space game where you are acquiring tanks, vehicles, infantry, spaceships, and going out and taking over worlds in order to generate the most power and eventually conquer home worlds, which grant you victory points at the end of the game. It's an okay deck builder. I stress that I would only ever play it with three players or less because with four or five it just gets too long and too convoluted with all the cards you can get. But I like the sound of it on iOS because it will move faster, you won't have the whole setup time, the tableau will be easier to manage because it will be on screen and 
with iOS, it means that you can put lots of cool sort of special effects and f not 3D, but you know, cool space effects and sound and all that lot into the game. And that will probably make it a lot more enjoyable for me. So whereas I'm not a big fan of this game as a board game, I would certainly look into it as an iOS or Android app. So hopefully that will get going. Um, I think the Kickstarter is still going or it might have finished by now, but have a look on Kickstarter and see if you can still find it. But be on the lookout for Core Worlds when they eventually get around to producing it. Kicking off the first impressions is a game called Lost Legacy The Starship, released by AEG earlier this year. Now, I saw this at my club yesterday and I was really perplexed as to what it was because it came in this blue drawstring bag, much like the one you get with Love Letter. So I was thinking, okay, small little card game, but never heard of it. It completely flew under my radar and I was told that it was basically a more advanced version of Love Letter. Now, Love Letter is a very good little filler game. I have it in my collection and I teach it a lot to non-gamers and still enjoy a good three or four player game with gamers whenever possible. So I jumped in at a chance to try this out. The way it works is that, much like Love Letter, you just draw a card and play a card, and each card has a special ability. But what happens that differs from Love Letter is that when you get to the end of the deck, instead of just simply going, all right, who's got the highest number, what you have to do is guess where the fabled Lost Legacy Starship is located. Now, the Lost Legacy Starship itself is a card that you can pick up during the game. Now, this is really cool because now not only are you just simply trying to eliminate other players, but you also want to find out where that Lost Legacy is because at the end of the game, in rank order on the cards, you will get turns to guess where it is. And now that can be in either another player's hand or it could be in the ruins, which is basically a tableau of cards in the center of the board that build up when other cards get played. So that's really cool. You get the same quickness of Love Letter. You still get the same sort of take that back and forth as Love Letter. It's still simple to play and teach like Love Letter, but you just get that added little element at the end of the game to determine who wins. And simply being able to guess first doesn't necessarily mean you will win if you haven't figured out where the Lost Legacy is hidden. Now, there's two expansions on the horizon for this year, looking on Board Game Geek. So I suspect that will just be new cards, but then new cards means new abilities. You will be able to mix and match with them and play up to six players. This sounds like a really cool idea, and I was really, I really enjoyed the game. I thought, you know, yes, it is basically a clone of Love Letter, but Love Letter is a good game. And this is a good game with a little bit of extra deduction in it. So I think this one's going to go pretty well, and I look forward to seeing what the expansions hold. Might even grab the original game myself. I mean, let's face it, £6.50, what have you got to lose? And then the second first impressions is Trains, also by AEG. It seems to be a running theme of this segment of the show. Now... I enjoyed Dominion when I got shown it. Dominion is basically the bare bones deck builder. You've got 10 decks of cards and you've got some generic cards that everybody can buy. And like all deck builders, you play cards to acquire other cards that have different abilities. And you're trying to construct your deck to be the most efficient at acquiring victory points. 
Now, Trains works in very much the same way. You've got the same setup, so 10 different decks of cards and some generic ones. You've got your basic hand, but instead of just leaving it at that, you also have a board in the center of the table where you can lay train tracks on in order to spread across a map and various other little victory points that you can get by building stations in certain hexes. Now, I, I, I enjoyed the game somewhat, but I was expecting a lot more from a game that I, I don't think it won an award, but it certainly has been highly rated among certain gamers. And I just, I don't know, I just felt it was just a generic clone of Dominion. Yes, it has the board, but the board pretty much just gives you an extra one or two ways in order to win the game. Now, multiple paths to victory is always good, but to have an entire board where your rails are literally just tiny little cubes, so it looks a bit weird, and the point track is completely worthless until the very end of the game anyway, because you do not add points as you go along, it just seemed a little superfluous. And the decks themselves, again, like Dominion, they're just very basic, you know, this card lets you draw another card, this one lets you look at the top four of your deck and choose one, this one allows you to not gain waste during a turn. And waste is kind of like an extra mechanic compared to Dominion, where when you play certain cards like laying rails and building stations, you have to take a waste card, which is a bit like the wounds in Marvel Legendary, they basically clog up your hand and don't do anything. There are certain ways to mitigate the waste in your deck, but that depends on what decks come out to play because there's obviously quite a lot to choose from. The game we played only had one way to mitigate waste and all it did was allow you to prevent gaining more waste. And it was quite an expensive card. So basically all the decks just piled up with a ton of waste. I mean, I just couldn't, I just didn't bother with that card and waste was just piling up and up and up. And several of us had turns where literally it was just like, draw so many waste, right, done, next. And that just spoiled it for me a bit. The fact that the waste can really just make certain that you're not going to do anything for several turns. I mean, you get wounds in Marvel Legendary, but if you've got to that stage, you're generally going to lose anyway. With this, you still have to carry on. And it's not that short of a game. Dominion can be played in a very short time. This one took a little while longer, and it just wasn't really grabbing me. Now, there is a standalone expansion coming out later this year called Rising Sun, and it adds things like specified routes that you can connect in order to get more points, obviously more cards, different trains, that kind of thing. Maybe that will take my interest a bit more. They are bringing a new, I think they've just brought out a new map pack for the original, but that's not enough to really grab me. So, I don't know, maybe I need to give this one another try or wait for Rising Suns, but... I was a bit disappointed. I figured that I'd rather just play Dominion because it's easier to teach and all the wealth of expansions it's got means you can vary it a lot more than Trains in its current state. So that's Trains. Could have been better, but not too bad. Now, the discussion segment for today is about teaching new players how to play games. I like teaching games to people, and I own a lot of games that are suitable for new players, such as gateway games and particularly co-op games. They're very good to teach, but I teach, I would say, a wide spectrum of abilities. Now, I'm used to teaching people at the clubs who are gamers and therefore have no problem in effectively getting the game that I'm teaching them. You know, they can understand mechanics, they can understand rules, they can relate to other games that they've played. But with new players, you have to be careful because 
New players obviously haven't learned these mechanics. They don't have this plethora of information that they can draw upon in order to understand the game better. They have to essentially start from scratch and everybody has a different way that they learn. So you have to be, I would say the first tip is that you need to be patient with these people. You cannot just jump in, teach them a game and expect them to instantly get it. You might have to do one or two dummy games so that they might understand the rules there and then. But you cannot rush in thinking that they're going to get it the first time you explain it and you cannot get frustrated with them because if you get frustrated with a new player trying to learn a game, they won't want to learn how to play games and you've just lost somebody who could bring into the hobby. Now I can use my new girlfriend as a perfect example for this because I am teaching her games at the moment. She's interested in my hobby and she's never going to be a born again gamer or anything like that. I'm not expecting that she'll ever want to play giant Euro games or anything like that in the future. You know, there's no way is like Caverna or Le Havre going to be in her repertoire anytime soon. But certainly I've had some luck with fillers and very slight gateway games. And slowly but surely, I'm just building up. I've managed to teach her Love Letter, uh, Hive Pocket, which she wasn't a fan of, but I managed to teach her it. Uh, what else? Um, Hanabi, which is a good favourite of hers. That was easy to teach first time. And I've just managed to also teach her Ticket to Ride, which is always a good one to do with new players or families. And also Carcassonne. Carcassonne's gone down as a good favourite of hers at the moment, alongside Hanabi, so that's a good one to have and I look forward to being able to just literally filter in expansions as we go along and continue that game in a more advanced way. It also gives me an incentive to look up the other Carcassonne expansions which I haven't bought yet. I've only bought the first two major expansions. I haven't bought any of the mini ones and I haven't tried any of the other majors. So I'll be interested to see how that goes and I might even look up Carcassonne the City and maybe even South Seas to see whether they're good implementations or not. But, well, I've got to be careful. I don't want to end up replacing Carcassonne because I enjoy it quite a bit myself. But certainly that one is a good one to teach to new players. And she got it because she likes seeing things build up. So the map building up was a strong attraction for her. So that's how that one relates. But I really enjoy teaching her new games because it's almost like a learning process for myself. I get to see what types of games she likes from the ones that she's starting to enjoy. I tried to teach her Citadels and that just went down like a lead balloon. The whole role selection aspect and how turn order worked in that game, it just flew right over her head and she could not get it. Even though I found Citadels to be a relatively easy game to learn, but it just wasn't on her wavelength. Maybe it was too soon to teach her Citadels or maybe I just explained it very poorly, who knows. But but in contrast to that, she got Hanabi really quickly. I mean, yeah, there's not many rules you have to learn in it, but we just both started thinking on the same wavelength. We started doing quite well in the game, you know, getting 20-plus scores in it. Uh, Ticket to Ride wasn't too difficult to teach. In fact, the hardest thing about teaching Ticket to Ride was trying to get into our head that you didn't have to roll to move your character. Well, character, you know, you know what I mean. It wasn't roll and move, which is something that she's been used to. So it's entertaining teaching new players how that works. But as well as finding out what genre she sort of likes, whether it's deduction, worker placement, uh, map building, uh, area control, that sort of thing, you also have to think about their learning styles. Now, we had an interesting conversation about this, and it was revealed that there are certain ways that people learn. You've got theorists, you've got pragmatists, you've got the... Oh, I forget what it is, I think it's because... I think it begins with an A, and it's... I forget what it's called, but it's an, an aggressive stance. 
Now, to basically go into it into a little bit more detail, the theorists are the ones who like to learn everything they can about the subject before they get stuck in. So imagine you were mending a clock. The theorist would like to find out and read up about everything to do with clocks before they even started thinking about the problem in hand. For a board game, that's the player who likes to read the rulebook from start to finish at least two times before they even go into trying to play the game. Now sometimes that's handy for when you're trying to teach the game to yourself, but to teach it to other players that doesn't tend to work very well. And if you do have one or two players like that, it's usually better just to hand them the rulebook while you're explaining it to everyone else. They're not as commonplace as other types, but you have to accept that there are some people like that. Pragmatis is probably the most common one you see, and I would say I fit more into this category than any other. The, these are the ones who will learn enough about a game just to focus on the problem in hand and then get stuck in. So going back to the clock example uh, for mending a clock, rather than read up on clocks in general, the pragmatist would want to just focus on the problem of I've got to mend this clock. So they would possibly read up or research how to mend a clock and probably stick to the brand or the type that they're repairing rather than go on about all clocks in general. So they focus more. And I would say I fit into that category better. That's how I prefer to learn a game. I, I start with a little bit of theory, just relevant to what I want to do, and then I get stuck in and I do it. The best example of this was my first game I played at a board game club called Seven Wonders, where I got taught the game. I was used to the iconography already from other things I used to do, so I didn't have a problem with that. But there were so many different strategies you could do in Seven Wonders that I just thought, well, let me focus on how military works. And then bear in mind, I was playing with the leaders expansion in this game. So first game of Seven Wonders and we're already using leaders. So I got stuck in and I just decided I'm going to go full military. I managed to draft two leaders that helped me with red cards and I just focused on getting military. Of course, I tried to get the odd few points from blues and yellows and stuff like that. But I ignored science entirely. I figured, right, my first game, probably not going to get how science works. Let's leave that. I can learn how it works from how other players do it. But for now, I'm going to focus on the task I'm doing, which is getting lots of military. And I won that game. So it does work. That It's a good learning style, and a lot of people have it. However, this is probably the one that is, I would say this is probably the most enjoyable teaching style, sorry, not teaching, learning style that I come across. And this is one that I think my girlfriend is basically the quintessential example of. This is related to her aggressive learning style, but I can't remember the name. I do apologize. I think it begins with A. I'm sure an expert on the subject would be able to correct me instantly. But essentially, these people just like to get stuck in and to hell with the consequences, just get stuck in and learn by doing. Now, for a board game, this means that you just do not tell them a plethora of rules to begin with. You just simply go, right, turn one, this is how you play it. This works brilliantly with co-op games, which is why I always recommend that you teach them a co-op as their first game. And there are lots of gateway co-op games out there. You can take, obviously, there's Flashpoint Fire Rescue, is relatively easy. You have Shadows of a Camelot, which is a little bit harder, but... Still, not too difficult to teach them, but Hanabi, simple, co-op, card game. That's an easy one to try right off the bat. And there are other ones as well. I mean, Ghost Stories is not particularly difficult to teach, uh, looking on the shelf. Even, I suppose, Sentinels of the Multiverse would have to come later, but, you know, that's still not too difficult to teach. 
getting away from co-ops, you can also just do dummy games of things like Ticket to Ride. You just accept that it doesn't matter who wins or loses, we're just going to teach you the rules and literally you just get stuck in and explain how it works turn by turn. But these people you cannot explain rules to, you cannot teach them heavy games, you just literally got to get stuck into one or two games, help them through it, and then accept that the first two games you play are just dummies. You know, wipe them off the record if all you're interested in is wins. Hopefully you're playing games for other reasons than just to win, but I'm just going to make that point now. And that's probably the most enjoyable one of the lot, actually, because you still get to play the game, but you get to watch somebody learn, and as they learn more games, they will be able to understand new games better, so they have to start low and then build up. You can't just throw someone into Power Grid or La Havre or something straight off the bat and expect them to get it. It's just going to completely overwhelm them and there's nothing that you'll be able to do to effectively increase their enjoyment of this genre. You have to accept that new players are going to take time to build up into the whole board gaming world. Once they do, it's great. But even if they don't, even if they literally stay at a peak of light games, there are lots of nice light games out there. Get them in your collection and play those with those people. I can go to a board gaming club and whip out Caverna or Nations or Terra Mystica with the gamer friends who I know who like all the heavy stuff. It's not like you're never going to get to play those games again. You just have to choose the right people to play them with. When you're teaching new players though, if they are gamers then fair enough you can teach them whatever game you like. But you just have to take into account that some like to learn by doing, some like a bit of focus and some just like to read the rules. With new players to board gaming in general though, keep it light. Keep it light to begin with and then slowly build up. You'll find that they'll enjoy it a lot more and you'll enjoy teaching them a lot more. And then eventually you'll have a new gaming partner to play with, which is what I'm hoping for with my girlfriend. But, you know, if she turned around and said, I don't like board games in general, wouldn't bother me. I can go to a board gaming club and play board games. I've got board games I can play solo as well if necessary. It's not essential that she knows how to play them. It's just really cool that we can share some time together, you know, bond in a relationship and just, you know, have some fun together, which is different than just watching TV or a movie. You know, we like to go out on walks and, you know, outdoor pursuits quite often, but it's nice that we can just sit in and play a harmless little game and just enjoy some banter and some maybe some back and forth, you know, cruelty while we're at it. Not nasty cruelty, but... Let's face it, uh, I've already been the vicious victim of a four-player co-op attempt against me in Survive Escape from Atlantis. So, yeah, cruelty comes in all shapes and sizes. So, that's basically how I would view teaching new players. I hope that advice has been useful. But for now, let's get on to the big one, the top 10 games. So here we go, this is the all-time top 10 games of my personal collection and opinion. I enjoy these games really much and it was not easy making this list, I can tell you that. There are a lot of games I enjoy and trying to pick out the 10 that I would consider the best was a harder job than I thought. Especially just trying to get them into the right order, let alone trying to come up with 10 in general. I could probably generate an entirely different list of 10 games and it would still make sense. There's a lot of games I enjoy out there, but only 10 can get the prestigious position. Now, obviously, this is my humble opinion. You might disagree that some of these games are worth being in the top 10. 
You might not like some of these games at all, but understand where I'm coming from. Hopefully from other podcasts and from my reviews, you've got a sense of what types of games I like. That might influence what games I would want to put on a chart like this. But a lot of people have wanted this and I'm happy to produce it. This is my top 10 games of all time. Now, previously I have done these segments where I've had number 10, number 9, number 8, etc. booming out with musical outros in between. That takes a long time to edit and sometimes the voice can be wrong volumes and it just becomes a mess. So I'm probably going to keep the musical segments just to separate 10, 9, 8, 7 out. But I'm not going to do the booming 7, 8, you know, type style voices because it's just not... It's too much time to edit, it's too fiddly and it's... Like I say, I've got to keep the editing and production time of this down so that I can fit it in with all my work commitments, all my life commitments, my girlfriend commitments, etc. So you might notice a slight change to the format. But that's enough technical babbery. Let's just get on with the top 10. And we kickstart off with number 10. Now this is a very new addition to my collection. I didn't even know if I would enjoy this or not, being a very light filler game, but I really like bluffing and negotiation games. Bluffing and negotiation games, in those ones, you don't necessarily play the game, you play the people. And if you can get a decent group together for a negotiation game, it is just so much fun. And okay, you can argue that these sort of games can break if you get the wrong group, but then I could say that about any genre of game. If I try to get people who aren't diehard gamers into Euros, that game's going to fall flat. If I get people who literally just want to play their own solitaire game and not even banter with you on the table when you're playing a the game, then that's going to make it fall through as well. Now, even though negotiation and bluffing games can be a little more susceptible to that sort of thing, I think it's not too difficult to teach these games, and it's usually easy enough to find groups that are willing to play them right. But that's enough of a disclaimer. This number 10 is One Night Ultimate Werewolf. I have played the normal werewolf and the biggest problem with it is the player elimination aspect. You could be playing a game with 25 players and you might be eliminated in the first round and then you've got to wait for everybody to finish. And it's not necessarily the most enjoyable thing to watch. You really want to be part of it. One Night Ultimate Werewolf takes the rule set from werewolf and just makes it one night. It keeps the rules simple so you've got troublemakers switching cards you've got the insomniac waking up and knowing who they are the drunk who swaps the card and doesn't know who he is the masons who know each other the minion who's helping the werewolf you've got all these cool roles that you can put into the game at your leisure you don't have to include them all you can tailor it however you wish and it just gets it done there and there in five minutes or even less you can tailor that to how you like you can basically just do it in a five minute timer 10 minutes whatever length of time you want so you can knock out a lot of these games in quick succession. And if you combine it with the app on iOS, where Eric Summerer does the voices for the setup time, then it's even easier and even smoother to bring up to the table. And I guarantee you will finish a game and intro of this in 10 minutes, because Eric Summerer's little speech thing can usually take less than three minutes for the whole thing to finish, depending on how many advanced roles you put into the game. And then you could set the timer to five minutes because that's really all you need. Vote, see what happens, and then just laugh out loud in hilarity as you tell stories about, hang on, I thought I was this guy. What were you doing as a werewolf? And just having so much fun telling the stories of how the game went. The first time I played this game, we played seven in a row. Honestly, seven games of this in a row. It was just that much fun. It's a hilarious little game, and I always... 
am keen to play this whenever somebody decides we're going to play it as a filler. You need the app though to make it smooth, but I still think this is a hilarious game and it has just been a good favourite. Maybe that will die down over time, maybe this wouldn't fit my top 10 in a few months time, who knows, but for now I'm really enjoying this. Neat, cheap, easy to teach, easy to play, and just great fun if you like bluffing games. Number nine is a Euro game, which I have been praising a lot of in the past. It has topped several of my charts, usually with relation to the top 2013 games. But in recent months, it has gone down a little bit. It's not getting played as much as I like, but I still really respect the game and I still enjoy it a lot. And that is Spirium. Spirium is a little midweight Euro game where your workers have two possibilities when they hit the table. Your table is basically nine cards, which can differ from round to round and game to game. But when you place your worker, it can either purchase or use the card that's there, or you can take it off and it can get you money. And the amount that a card costs or the amount of money you get is dependent on how many other meeples surround the card in question. So it works like a really cool market supply and demand mechanic. And there's multiple paths to victory. It's easy to teach. The artwork's good, even though it would be nice if they printed names of the characters on the card so you actually knew that one was a geologist or something like that. And this game could use an expansion. It could probably do with some more cards just to randomize it even more. But it just works really well. It's such an ingenious mechanic. And it just takes that worker placement to a midweight level because most worker placement games tend to be pretty heavy in nature and just gives you a really cool little game. It's uh, it does not going to hit as high in the chart as some people might have expected because it met, whereas I thought it was one of the best games in 2013 at one point, it's still what I think to be a great game, but it's just fallen on the wayside a little bit lately from repeated plays. But it's still number nine in my all-time top ten. That's pretty good going. That's Spirium. Number eight is a hybrid game, and I've yet to review this, but a review is coming. It's just taken a while to effectively write it up, and there was, there was demand for other reviews to be done first. But this is how you do asymmetrical games right, and I, I mean, asymmetrical is an understatement. You have got, with the expansion, five different factions that you can play in this game. They all play very differently. They all have different units. They all have different uh, objectives and they just it just works so well this is possibly the best warhammer game that exists as a board game and that's chaos in the old world by eric lang it's a really good sort of back and forth hybrid game because it's got euro mechanics where you're doing area control on the board but it's also got some amerifrash style ideas in it where you're rolling dice and engaging in combat and playing spell cards to screw over other players I say Amerifrash because I heard it on the Dice Tower recently, and yes, I know, credit to Z Garcia for coming up with it first, but Amerifrash just sounds better than Trash. Trash sounds really bad. I think Frash is better, so I'm going to use that now. But Chaos in Your World is great because the races are still pretty balanced. It can lead to some very close games. There is a lot of back and forth among players, and it's very bloodthirsty because there's only so much space on the board, and you're trying to dominate regions, and each god just feels very different, whether you're Nurgle or Sunesh, the Zenich, Zenich, whatever, I'm never going to pronounce that correctly, and Korn, and with the expansion you even get to play the Skaven as well. It's a really quality hybrid game, well worth the money, there's 
a second edition in print with a really cool box cover as well. But I urge you, get the game and give it a try because it's fallen under the radar for a lot of people. But if you like the Warhammer universe and you're interested in the whole Gods of Chaos thing, this is with great miniatures, a great looking board. I mean, it's Fantasy Flight. What do you expect? This is a really quality game and I urge you to give it a try. Chaos in the Old World, number eight. For number seven, we are back to negotiation games. However, this one has been reprinted umpteen amount of times in the years that it's existed. This is one of the oldest games in my collection. If you consider when it first came out, I think it was the 70s it came out first. And for an idea that's been around since then, it's certainly remarkable that it's still popular to this day. It is Tom Vassell's number one game. It is my number seven, and that is Cosmic Encounter. Cosmic Encounter is a great negotiation game where you have a racial power based on umpteen amount of different aliens. I mean, there are so many different race powers in this game, it's impossible to keep count and play them all. You could not play any, you could not play every combination that exists in this game. It is physically impossible. But you are trying to get colonies on foreign planets, and you do this by engaging in combat with one other player, playing a card which usually has an attack value or negotiates because you can try to do a diplomatic solution but of course you're negotiating with the other player you don't know what they're going to do they might lie straight to your face or they might side with you but the real banter comes in when you invite allies to your side you can invite any or all allies to your side and it's great when people start choosing their battles some will just opt out of it and go nope not going to get involved that's fine you somebody will ask for everybody and you'll ask for the same people and you go come on let's go for it and, and you look in dismay as their ships appear on the opposite side of the board and it's like were well, you helping him me you know i asked for you it, it can create some great banter and the fact that you can win jointly in this game is a really cool thing as well because i have won this game by myself but it's also just as cool to go look come on we can do this, we can do this, we can both win this game, okay, right, negotiate, and you just attack me, how dare you, you lied, you know, if you can get some great banter in this game, and the sheer amount of combinations with this, just make this an excellent game to bring out as often as possible, that is Cosmic Encounter number 7. Number 6 is a type of genre that I never thought I would see on my top 10 ever, because I have now grown fed up with CCGs. I just cannot stand them anymore. I don't like the whole thing of buying boosters and having to guess or hope that you'll get the cards you want and then spend loads on singles, that kind of thing. So the LCG model has really grabbed me with at least two games now, and it's interested me with others, but just not stuck with me. And there's a new game for Warhammer 40,000 Conquest coming out, which I'm looking forward to giving a try as well. But I own two LCGs, Lord of the Rings and Android Netrunner. Now, both are very good. Both have their pros and cons. But for me, my number six game is Android Netrunner. This, again, is an example of when people get asymmetrical games right. I like asymmetrical races. I like the fact that you can play different sides in a game and each one feels very different and isn't necessarily balanced. In Android Netrunner, though, the two sides that you play, you are playing two different games when you're playing these guys. You could be the runner, where you're trying to build up your little laptop full of gizmos and icebreakers in order to invade the corporation servers, find all the agendas that you need, the information and victory points basically, and steal them for yourself. 
but as the corporation you've got to set up the servers you've got to lay ice traps down in order to you know ice as in uh, countermeasures electronic countermeasures and you've got to bluff your way into hoping that they don't go for the agendas that you've set up in secret and hit your traps instead or you've just got to make them think that their efforts are going to be futile and get the agendas um, advanced quickly while they're sorting out their laptop rig it's great how this game works two completely different games depending what side you're playing and it's very balanced neither side feels that much more easier to pl well some may be easier to play depending on your perspective but none feels more overpowered than the other and when you play netrunner in a tournament setting or even in the proper setting you're supposed to play one of each side anyway so it doesn't matter that what if one side is slightly better because you're going to play the other side anyway but the theme in this really comes out it just feels like a cyberpunk universe it's an lcg so when you even though there's umpteen amount of data packs for it now and big expansions you can choose which ones you want by just looking up the card list you don't have to do what i did and go mad and go buy every card ever made but at least if you do you have access to all the cards so it becomes more about the player skill rather than how much you spent on your deck that separates who can win this game more than others and it's just you get to some really you get bluffing in this you get uh, hand management you get resource management it's just an excellent lcg one of obviously my favorite lcg that has come out to date and one of my top 10 games it deserves the spot give it a shot if you haven't the core set is unbelievably good value you get several decks one for each faction you can figure out which faction you like best it's a steal at the cost you buy it for which i think is 25 pound for the core set Give it a try, find it at a demo day, or just come to one of my game clubs in Southampton or Portsmouth because loads of us play Netrunner. So that's my number six. Number five. Now, I used to like its predecessor quite a lot, but I still didn't like the fact that feeding your people was a major function of the game. You know, you had to feed your people, otherwise you just fell apart and it was very tight and mean. That was Agricola. This one, however, my number five, is Caverner the Cave Farmers. In Caverner, it's pretty much Agricola 2.0, but instead of feeding your people having to be the be-all or end-all of the game, it's more of a sideline. You still have to do it, and it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do in the world, but it's no longer, ah, oh, I can't feed my people, the world is over. I also didn't like in the Grickler that if you didn't have certain things, you got loads of negative points. So you had to have a balanced farm. With this, you don't. You get negative points for unused spaces, which is normal, and you do get some negative points for not having certain animal types, but you can get uncapped points for doing something else. So if you decide that you want no animals at all, and you go entirely just for farming uh, grain and pumpkins, you can do that. If you want to ignore the outside world and just build up a, effectively an albino colony inside your cave with multiple family members but lots of different rooms and mines with donkeys in them, it, you can do that as well. There are so many routes you can take in this game. There are so many building tiles you can try. You always want to play it again after you've just played it once because you think, oh, I did that. I did sheep farming this time. Now I want to do mining. Now I want to do adventuring. Now I want to do grain farming. I, I think last time I actually did grain farming so I could use the beer parlor. So I was effectively a beer brewery. That was how I designed my game. I was a brewery with all the family members. So it was a big family brewery business. And you, there's just so much variety in this game. Now, it's not the easiest one to teach. 
and it is expensive it's quite a pricey game but you do get a lot of cool components unfortunately trying to store them in the box once you've uh, packaged it all up is nigh on impossible without getting the box to lid to be a little bit high and it's going to take up a lot of space on your shelf but trust me this is the better version of Agricola I still enjoy Agricola but this one beats it hands down I love it great Euro game Cabrera My number four game is my number one Euro game. This proved to me that you don't always need a strong theme in order for a game to be good because the theme is pretty tacked on in this one across the board. I mean, yes, it's got a little fantasy theme, but pretty much it's a just bare bones mechanics game, but it just works so well. It seems to play out smoothly, even though it's quite a complex game and there are multiple paths to victory, your style of play will differ depending on which race you are, and there's at least, I think, 14 races in the game, so there's so much variety. And later this year, they're going to bring out an expansion where there's going to be like another 10 races or something like that. 10 races? or It might be a bit less than that, actually. Five, I think it might be six or seven, actually, yeah, come to think of it. But that's just going to make it even better, and that's Terra Mystica. Now, this is quite a divisive game. Some people love it and some people hate it. But for me, it's just a really great Euro game. There's so much to think about when you're doing your turns and you're trying to be as efficient as possible in building up your little civilization. You can go for generating power points in order to use all the special abilities on the board more often. You can go for cults in order to get points there. You can expand your civilization over water and across the landscape. And the clever mechanic of getting cheaper buildings when you build next to people at the expense of giving them power that they can use is quite a cool little thing because you have to juggle how much you give them with how much benefit you're getting from making buildings cheaper. It's a solid game, love it, always like to play it. Works best with probably three players, four maybe. I, not something I would generally play with two, but it's still a half decent game with two. Never, I don't think you can play this game with five, but if you can, don't play it with five, it's too many. But Three or four players with Terra Mystica is just an awesome Euro game. It proves that you do not need theme necessarily in order to make a quality game, but I love it. It's my favorite Euro game and it's making my number four. And now we enter my top three. This is where the, these are the creme de la creme of the games that I just love playing almost no matter what. Now, pretty much every game has got player limits of how many players you should play the game with but as long as you just keep to those ones they're usually quite extreme these games I will play regardless and number three is almost a cheat you could put two games in this category but I'm going to choose Eldritch Horror as the one that tops the other you could include Arkham Horror in this if you like because I really enjoy Arkham Horror as well but it's difficult to get that to the table unless it's a solo game because of all the rules, all the expansions, all the setup time for it. Eldritch Horror, however, takes that theme of the Cthulhu universe and makes it into a more streamlined, easier to teach game that you can get done in two hours, depending on the number of players, possibly even less or more, depending on how the game goes. But it still has that really cool element of theme and ancient ones and battling things that you should not know it just works really well and is wonderfully thematic the condition cards particularly in that you can have multiple outcomes for having the condition so you know if you take debt for example with the bank loans one debt might be that hired goons come and try to bust your kneecaps one could be you enter into a dark pact 
Another could be that you bankrupt yourself. You know, there's all sorts of different outcomes for all the different conditions. And that's really cool because you never know which one it's going to be when you take it. The recent expansion for it, Forbidden Law, that introduced Yig. Yig is quite a cool ancient one to fight. He's not that easy to beat. But the cool thing is that brought in new conditions. It also expanded all the decks. So now you've got much more variety in the game. If it was just the base game, I might have not necessarily bought it as high as free. I think it might have been further down the list, but it was still in the top 10. But Forbidden Law really upped this game because now you have lots of variety in all the decks and suddenly every game now feels like a different one. It's quality. I mean, Arkham Horror is still great. I still love it. But Eldritch Horror is now Pit the Post. It's basically the quintessential game you go to if you're interested in the Cthulhu Mythos. Number three, Eldritch Horror. Okay, we're now into the number two bracket, and number two is a cooperative game which was the first one I ever reviewed. Now, I said at the beginning of this podcast what that game was, so I don't know if you lot remember, but this game I can teach to experienced gamers, I can teach to new gamers, it's got so much better with all the expansions, and they're still bringing the expansions out. I've already backed the new Honor and Duty Kickstarter one that they brought on, Indie Boarding Games, and this is Flashpoint Fire Rescue. I really enjoy this co-op because every game is different because of the randomness of how the fire spreads out. You've got so many different maps you can do. You can do the ship, the submarine, the one-story house, the two-story house, the three-story building, the three-story lab, the mechanic garage. You can add basements and attics into them now. You've also got the apartment building. You've got the skyscraper. And soon we're going to have even more new maps it's just oh it's really great love it it goes down well you can easily set this up for a family style game you know like basic rules or you can make it more experienced with all the characters the promo pack added in the dog which is a fun one to use it's just really wonderfully thematic because it works exactly how a formal fire would fires are unpredictable they will start up in random places when you're inside a building that's on fire the lose conditions are balanced, you know, I mean, most of the time you will lose by uh, the building falling on top of you, but occasionally fire might spread out of control and you might lose victims. So you've got to take it as it goes. But each game is always great fun. I love playing this particularly as a solo game, but I still enjoy teaching new players it because a lot of people haven't really tried this game out. So I go, right, let's try it. And it always goes down well because you can't really alpha game this one out. Every player can decide for themselves what they want to do, and every move they do is usually a good one. Clear fire, save a victim, remove a hazardous waste, open doors. You know, anything that they decide to do is usually good to do. So you don't have to alpha game it and go, now you should really do that. You know, everyone really gets into the vibe and works together. Now, you know, you can... The new rules in like Extreme Danger added in new miniatures. You can climb ladders. You can do the multi-story buildings. You can do floor damage. There's a lot of stuff that you can tailor this game for. And it scales well with all number of players. You know, two to six players this will play. And every single one of those works really well. It's balanced with two to six players. I've never found it that much harder or easier with them. Because obviously the more players you have, the more fire there is. But then obviously the more people to put them out. And it's it's really great little team game. Almost my favourite game of all time. It's been picked up 
well, no, actually it hasn't been pipped at the post. My number one game destroys this game even. That's how much I like it. So what could that be? But anyway, number two, Flashpoint Fire Rescue. Here we go, guys, my number one game of all time. This game, I mean, I already enjoy Flashpoint Fire Rescue, but this game I really enjoy. It doesn't matter how we play it. You can tailor it for number of players, depending on whether you play with three, four, or five. There's so much variety in this game. It captures the superhero theme immensely. Each person has their own deck with their own character, with their own play style. So you don't do it like Dominion or Legendary where you have to, well, like Legendary, for example, when you just recruit a team, this is your own hero, but you have to work as a team, otherwise you will not win. You cannot alpha game this, and it just works so well. It just feels like a comic book coming to life. I get so much enjoyment from this game, and I never have a dull experience. And there are some times when you are literally at the wire, you know, several of your teammates are incapacitated and they're literally giving you their last strength so that you can beat the bad guy in the last instance. I've got every expansion to this. It introduces so many heroes and villains. You've got environments that go against you. If you haven't guessed already, this is Sentinels of the Multiverse. I absolutely adore this superhero game. And you will notice that, you know, my top of my list has been quite co-op heavy. I do like co-ops a lot, therefore they are going to feature heavily in my top 10. But Sentinels in the Multiverse just trumps the rest of them. I like Flashpoint, I like Legendary, I like Shadows of a Camelot, I like Eldritch Horror. But Sentinels in the Multiverse, oh, I mean, it's, it's simple to play with the app. It's really smooth. You don't have to worry about bookkeeping to a great extent with the app. All the environments, all the villains, all the heroes, they create completely different games depending on what combination you use. You can even do a 5 versus 5, you know, hero versus villain team game now with the Vengeance expansion. And I'm sure they'll continue to expand this game with more heroes and villains as time goes on. But even if they didn't, I've got so much in that box to enjoy Sentinels of the Multiverse for as long as I can physically think to look that far ahead. It's... <laughs> And to top it all off, you've also got backstories for each character and that link up with each other. So the theme just comes out so well. You've got nemeses, so you know you can tailor your battles so that you know Baron Blade, for example, is fighting against his arch nemesis Legacy, as well as certain other characters. That means more damage gets passed between the two. It's I don't know. And every time I teach this game, people like the fact that they have their own deck. With Legendary, you just recruit a team and you can have a mishmash of heroes in your deck. With this, you have one deck. It is yours. You want to play Bunker, the Iron Man replica? Then play Bunker. Here's your deck. I can't do anything about the fact that that's your deck. You know, it's your deck, your cards. Learn the combos and let's work together. It's, uh, I can't say enough good about this game. I love it. It's a cooperative game. What a surprise it would be my number one considering how much I like cooperative games. It's superheroes, which is one of my favorite themes. It's just awesome. Play it. I mean, play it. Just play it. Yeah. I understand if you don't like it yourself. Some of you may not go for it. Some of you may not be a cooperative fan. But I think that if you are into cooperative games and you like superheroes, you will like this without a shadow of a doubt. Maybe not as much as me, but for my personal taste, it's my number one easily. Sentinels of the Multiverse.
And there we have it, that is my current top 10 favourite games of all time. Just to mention some honourable games that didn't quite make the list, we have Descent 2.0, the dungeon crawl game. We have Lords of Waterdeep, very good gateway worker placement game. We also have Innovation, which is a, a very remarkable sort of abstract card game where you're building up a civilization with uh, technologies over time. Works great with two players, but tends to suffer a bit with more, hence it didn't quite make the top ten. Other really good games I like, Ticket to Ride, you know, that didn't quite make the list. Seasons is another good one. Um, Shadows of a Camelot itself, again, very good game. The Lord of the Rings LCG was another one. Uh, there's so many games. Marvel Legendary, even. You know, I mentioned that a lot. And Nations, again, a very good Euro game. So there's a lot of games that just didn't quite make my shortlist. And cutting that shortlist down to those 10 was difficult enough in itself. And then trying to come up with the order that I would want to play these games in, that was even harder. So, honestly... That is how my top 10 looks. It is co-op heavy, I would say. Uh, let's have a look here. The top three games are co-ops. And, okay, fair enough. The top three games, all right, it's just the top three games that are co-ops. I would probably say there's a good mix, though, of games in general. We have, let's see, we have one, two, we have two negotiation games. We have an LCG. We have three Euro games, we have a hybrid game, we have three co-ops, so there's a bit of a mix. Oh yeah, and one party game technically with One Night Werewolf, so there's a bit of a mix. But I do love co-op games, therefore I think those are always going to be my sort of favourite games to play. Will this top 10 change the next time I come to do it? Maybe in a year's time? Who knows? But for now, that's the, these games I will always want to play given the chance. So that's it for me. I hope to see you on, I believe next one is episode 22, and the podcast will continue. It's been a year, it's been a fun year, hopefully things will improve over time. So take care, enjoy playing games, and I'll see you on the next episode. You've been listening to the Broken Meeple podcast. Please feel free to provide any useful, constructive feedback on what you would like to see improved in the show. If you'd like to talk to me personally, you can find me on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash thebrokenmeeple you can find me on twitter at thebrokenmeeple and you can also subscribe to my youtube channel just search for thebrokenmeeple the blog itself is hosted on blogger again just search for thebrokenmeeple and if you wish to meet me in person i attend free board gaming clubs during the week that is southampton on board on monday nights at seven o'clock at the titanic public house the Portsmouth On Board Society on the second and fourth Wednesday of the month at the British Legion Portsmouth, again at 7 o'clock. And also Fridays at the Chichester Board Game Club. Just search for the Chichester Gaming Society on Facebook and you can find more details there. I thank you for listening to my podcast. Hope you enjoyed the show. I'll catch you next time. For now, keep playing games and enjoy.